Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Turn with me, if you will, to the 32nd Psalm, holding a place here at the 51st. We've been looking at this first 51st Psalm for the last three weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago when we began, we looked at the first nine verses, and we really just looked at the essential focuses as it pertained to confession and seeking forgiveness. And there's a number of things within those first nine verses to really hone into as it relates to uh, the problem that all humanity faces, but specifically at times Christians as well, and that is this matter of forgiveness, needing to confess our sins, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And David begins in this 51st Psalm, and he speaks really of three attributes of God's character. And I'm thankful for the three that he hones in on there in verse number one. He talks about his his loving kindness. He talks about his tender mercies. He talks about the very fact that he's a merciful God to begin with. And those are the characteristics that are honed in on, that are highlighted. And it's a wonderful thing. In the attributes of God, there are a number of things we could speak of. We could speak of, for, for instance, that God is all-knowing. That, to me, is a characteristic of God that, um, that can bring fear in my heart. He knows everything about me. But that, coupled with His love and mercy, brings great relief. The fact that though He knows all about me, he, the Scripture in 130 Psalm says, uh, As a father pitieth his children... And that's a beautiful phrase there, pity. It, it, uh, it has the idea of a father, you, you know your children. And I, as a father, like to think that, uh, like any father, that your children are just good at everything. Amen? But now, as a real father, are your children good at everything? Are they? No. They are flesh and blood, just like you and I. So as a parent looks at that child, there's a level of tenderness towards them. And in that same vein, God the Father looking at His children, He pitieth them. He knoweth their frame, the Scripture says. You know what that is? He knows your makeup. He knows what you're made out of. He knows your struggles, your failures. He knows your strengths, and let me say this. He knows if surrendered to Him what He can use you to accomplish. And unlike sometimes fathers sometimes uh, try to live vicariously through their children, and sometimes children grow up with parents that had abilities that just were not genetic and did not exactly pass down that way. God is never ill-equipped his children to accomplish his will. David pleads on this and seeing God and references his mercy and his tenderness and his compassion. And he speaks of this depth of forgiveness that God and God alone uh, can forgive. Then in the next section last week, we dealt with really three petitions that are given in verses 10, 11, and 12. And I'm going to pick up with verse number 12 because in the context of the scriptures, it flows quite well. But the two primarily that I will not touch on outside of this introductory are found in verse number 10 and 11. The depths of this confession. Not simply, and sometimes we get this way in our confession to God, 
not to our priest, but to our God, forgive me. How surface is that? How casual is that? David's articulation of his confession with great depth, cast me not, what does he say? Uh, in verse number 11, cast me not away from thy presence. Create in me a clean heart. David's afraid of something. He's afraid, and rightfully so, that if he does not have this full forgiveness that only God can provide, he'll lose something that he treasured greatly. And now in this point of life has realized, has greatly been jeopardized, and that is the ability to commune with God. Cast me not away. He's not talking about a loss of salvation, but rather the idea of a loss of service and opportunity. God's going to put him on the side, as it were. Then he begins in verse number 12. A note there, if you will. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Now that's what's going to take us this morning. Look over in the 32nd Psalm. These two Psalms flow together quite well. But if one is going to speak of a restored joy in their salvation... There seems to me, in my mind and heart, to raise a question. What's it like to have salvation with no joy? If David wants a restored joy of his salvation, that then would note to me that one could have salvation and due to choices in their life, not unlike David, have lost a level of joy presence of their Savior in communion. And that would be rightly the case. Joy is distinct, as we mentioned last week, from happiness. They're two different things. You can have in your life the most unhappiest of circumstances and yet have the joy of the Lord. Just a moment ago on the special they were talking about, singing about rather the will of God. He is capable my friend, the presence of God is the source of the believer's joy. And as genuine and consistent and abiding and as eternal as is the presence of God, so can be the joy of God residing in the heart of a believer. So you can face any undifficult circumstance, and yet if you're walking with God, you can have joy in all of those. Yet a child of God can jeopardize their joy based on their actions and decisions of life while all the time maintaining their salvation. They are distinctive. Look at the 32nd Psalm. I think that probably the 32nd Psalm and the 51st meld together in great reference. There's a tremendous level of parallels. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm, but notice, if you will, in just the first, I don't know, maybe four verses. He starts off in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression has the idea of an act of war. You crossed a line you knew you shouldn't have crossed. His sin is covered. Romans talks about coming short of the glory of God. Verse number 2. Blessed is the man unto the, uh, whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. I'll rehearse these again in a moment. But iniquity, it would seem in the Psalms particularly is tied to your state as part of humanity. In the 139th Psalm, do you remember what David said? In iniquity, he was developed. He, he goes on there. I don't have it memorized, but if you look at the 139th Psalm, he's speaking of his iniquity and his birth and his growth in the womb of his mother, in, in iniquity, if you will. He goes on, he said, in whose spirit there is no guile. Note verse 3 and 4. He's talking about being in a state of unconfessed sin. 
When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. This is a powerful sentiment. Keeping silent isn't the fact that he only felt good when he talked. It's a reference to the fact that he has unconfessed sin and he has not made quick haste to confess it before God. It's attesting maybe perhaps a believer that is in a rebellious state, knowing what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're about to do is transgression, it's sin, they're coming short, they know that it displeases God, they engage in it, and deep within there now is, we might would call it conviction, certainly, if our conscience is attuned with any biblical truth, guilt. David said, when I kept science, my bones waxed. He's, he's referencing here a level of guilt. There's no joy present there. He said, it's through my roaring all the day long. It possesses me, as it were. My very physical body is raked in agony over this. He goes on in verse 4. For day and night, thy hand was what? Hebrews mentions this too. One of the testaments, commandments, if you will, expressions of God in the New Testament, one of the recognizable facts that you belong to God is how He deals with you when you sin. If one proclaims himself as a child of God and can go about life flaunting their rebellion against God and against His Holy Word with impunity. There's not a whole lot of things you can do with impunity in life. Really. They talk about diplomatic passports. Various countries around the world have certain members of their political system and they'll travel internationally. And as part of the recognized representative of a government, they're given a special pass, passport, diplomatic. And in some areas where they would have to go, boy, they almost don't even have to pay parking. You just can't prosecute them. They're covered with impunity. There are very few things to consider. But sometimes when it comes to Christians, oftentimes we look at the Word of God and we look what God said and He wrote it in black and white as it were, and we want to interpret it in the best light to allow ourselves the maximum space to enjoy whatever it is the lust of our heart would conceive to do. If we can be in that place, and verse number 4 is not a recognizable fact, that could be an indication of some grave difficulty in our life. If I can flaunt myself against God and God does not place His hand heavy against me, then Hebrews tells me something unique about that. Hebrews tells me that to every son, the father scourges. God is a good father. That's the analogy laid out throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. And every good father, seeing his son heir, what would he do? He's going to seek to correct him. If there's no correction from God in the life of a, uh, of a professing saint who is wandering away 
running from, living a life contrary to Scripture, you have a major difficulty. So as a child of God, God dealing heavy with you, that is a wonderful testament that He is your heavenly Father. This is where David's at. He's in that place where he has flaunted the commands of God. Thou shalt not kill, David's killed. Thou shalt not commit adultery, David's committed adultery. There's no atonement in the Mosaic law for those sacrifices to be made. The penalty is death. He recognizes that the forgiveness that he needs has to be a divine forgiveness. He throws himself upon the mercy of God, creating me a clean heart. Cast me not away. And most importantly, God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. His song is gone. His affection for the things of God are gone. The very presence of other saints communing with God is as a sharp knife into his heart. Not that they're literally doing that. But they're enjoying the wondrous blessing that comes with walking with God and that's communing with Christ. It's gone. David speaks of this, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And when the joy of salvation is restored, and this is our focus this morning, there are three specific fruits. I would attest that I would convey to you that I think these three fruits are often absent in the society of Christians today. Note the first of these. Verse number 13, Then, what? After my joy is restored. After I've got a clean heart. What kind of heart is that? A heart that desires the living God. He speaks earlier about a heart that longeth for God like a deer, as you will, panteth for the water brook. When I've got a heart that longs for holy things, when I've got the opportunity for service, when the joy of my salvation, one of the first elements is, I'll teach. Then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. That's marvelous, isn't it? What's he teaching? I'll tell you this, he doesn't need to teach about the judgment of God. You don't, you don't need to have your sins forgiven to know about the judgment of God. He's teaching in context about God's forgiveness. He's teaching about God's long-suffering attributes. A whole host of them. His ultimate ways, if you will, forgiveness, mercy, It's the real sense that accomplishes this or is accompanied in this particular psalm. In a broad sense, he's speaking, I'll teach your conduct. What has called me to return to the God of my salvation, what has called me to live a life that pleases God, of this grace and of this love and of this forgiveness, particularly here in verse number 13, he speaks of sinners being converted. That's an interesting word. Sometimes when you think about converted, you think about being born again. But I don't think that's the case here. I think the case is closer to what we find in James chapter 5 in the last two verses. The word convert here, it means to return to a previous state. Isn't that the whole sense of forgiveness? That those proclaiming saints 
having wandered away from the commands of God, living a life of transgression and sin. Now, David's saying, because of the joy I now have restored, and my walk with God is restored, and my fellowship is restored, I will teach those others that have lost the joy of their salvation that they can return to this same merciful, holy, just God. It's transformative, this great forgiveness. He goes on in verse number 14, he speaks of a second thing. He said, I will praise thee. Notice if you will in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. That's a powerful expression. I think here in this particular passage, you have in this text, this is the closest direct reference to the sins that he had actually committed. What he's actually pouring his heart out to God in regards to. The idea of blood there, it speaks, if you will, of murder of complicit desire to do evil. And the subsequent part of this word blood, guiltiness, speaks of guilt. This is the weight of sin. In David's particular case, in which there is no atonement to be made. And I'm speaking, of course, of the Mosaic law here. This is a heavy weight upon him. Because he has a restored joy of his salvation... He'll seek to teach others the ways of God that they might return unto Him. And the promise of being delivered from this guilt that so wrecks his soul, my tongue shall sing aloud of thy praises. That's a marvelous expression. The joy that is felt inwardly in my new heart, guess what it's going to do? It's going to come out my mouth, isn't it? By the way, in the Scriptures, isn't that put together? Isn't, isn't that the directive? That the words that come out of your heart, or rather mouth, proceed from your heart? If one is going to offer up praises to God, speaking particularly of His righteousness, it comes because that heart has experienced those righteousness. David said, I'll praise thee. You're the God of my salvation. You're the saving God. You're the only one that can restore the joy of my salvation. You're the only one that can forgive me. You're the only one that can put aside the guilt of the transgressions from me. Thank God that He has removed in a sense of atonement our sin as far as the east is from the west, but greater still that He has provided a way to deliver us from the guilt that would be upon us. I think of the passage, I know I speak of it often, but in Timothy, Paul says it's a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you remember the last phrase? I'm whom I am chief. What does that mean? In his personal estimation, Paul was the most grievous sinner to ever come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You could rehearse throughout the book of Acts and into Galatians and to Ephesians, to Philippians, and learn much of this. But you're going to tell me the man would not esteem him that way and not remember some of those transgressions that he had made against God? There's great guilt. God delivered him not only from his sin, but from his guilt. He had traded all of that because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And now it was that very Christ that gave him the peace of God that passes all understanding. With this coupled in the mind of David, he goes on to verse number 15. He said, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth will shew forth thy praises. 
Open my mouth. The idea here is a ringing cry of what God has done. He has freely forgiven us. And now that I have been freely forgiven, I can open my mouth and tell the great pardon that God alone offers. I'll go for singing of God's great righteousness. You know, this is still what we have to do today. You remember in Ephesians? In Ephesians, he talks about speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making a melody in your heart as unto the Lord. In the 19th Psalm, the 14th verse, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto thee, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It's a genuine praise. I wonder, get a little bit of good trouble here for a moment. What does this genuine praise sound like? What does it sound like? He speaks of the word crying aloud. Singing aloud in verse number 14 and verse 15. My mouth will be open, my lips open, shooing forth thy praise. It's a praise of righteousness. Therefore, I would say to you that it's the sound of righteousness. It's something that pleases God. By the way, God is only truly desirous of those things that He does. And the day and the average worship in a life of a Christian has so much to do with what they think pleases God. But God is truly interested in what He wants. For instance, all the way in Genesis, around about the fourth chapter, you have two brothers, both descended the same mom and the daddy. And that was? That's right, it was Adam and Eve. They go to worship God. One gives a sacrifice of a lamb. And what happened to it? It was accepted. The other gave a sacrifice of the first fruits of all of his land. And what happened? It was rejected. It is not up to you and I of our own heart and mind and thought or cultural relevance to decide what pleases God. God has given you through His Word the very mind of Christ. The praises of David, you know what it sounded like? The song of the redeemed. It sounded like acceptable worship from the temple or from the tabernacle in the days of Moses. It was holy. And here's a glorious phrase that you'll find throughout the Scripture, acceptable unto God. Just because you think God ought to have it, just because you want to give it, is not the same thing as what God wants. Here in this passage, he's going to praise him with something that is acceptable. And keeping in mind that, let me give you this third fruit. Look at verse 16. What is it that God wants? Now, David's a king. Prior to that, he was shepherd. Really, well, prior to that, he was a soldier, then a shepherd. There rarely was ever a time in David's life where he could not have been in the station of life to give God a perfect lamb. As king, his son would give in the neighborhood of thousands of lambs a sacrifice to God. David could have given a thousand lambs David could have given 
hundreds of bullocks. But he makes an interesting statement. Notice, if you will, in verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifices. I think maybe that's a peace offering, a free will offering. Else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Paul's there a moment. Look in verse 19. Then shalt thou be pleased with sacrifices of righteousness. Well, does God want these sacrifices or not want these sacrifices? I think it all goes together. David, without confession, could still offer sacrifices. David, he's a musician. Without confession, could still sing songs. David could still play instrumentals. In a sense, David could still go to church. He could still sit back and say, well, amen. But he and God knew something was terribly amiss. Why? I think this is why the 50th Psalm precedes the 51st. You remember the theme of the 50th Psalm? Two direct indictments. Formality and hypocrisy in worship. There was no genuineness. My, there's a lot of professing saints sometimes that live a life Monday through Saturday that is no different than the way the world system lives. They talk like the world, they think like the world, they act like the world, and then on Sunday they come and they sing and they shout and they dance about. God said, I'm not interested in that worship at all. That's what David's saying here. I'm not interested in it at all. Why? It's feigned. F-E-I-G-N, feign. It's fake. It's not real. It's hypocritical. The worship that God would have His children to make is one of righteousness, and the only way that a child of God can have a worship that is righteous if they have a walk that is righteous as well. Transform me, clean heart, restore the joy of my salvation, for then I'll teach, for then I'll praise, for then I'll worship, and that worship will be accepted. He's not interested in ritualism. He's not interested in hypocrisy. Those sacrifices are repudiated. He's interested in a holy life that is acceptable to him. You remember Romans chapter 12? Paul speaking of the previous 8 to 11 chapters says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the... And those mercies of God, that's the preceding chapters. That through His salvation, He's removed you from under the wrath of God. He has associated you with Himself. He has delivered you. He has commended His love towards you and that while you were at sinner, Christ died for you. 
So much so that there's a new nature in this child of God. And we need not yield our members to unrighteousness. And we have the Spirit of God that indwells us and keeps us and seals us and so much so that we cannot be separated from the love of God. All of that is the tender mercies. In chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you by those tender mercies that you therefore present your bodies a... Now note this. It's the same language. A living sacrifice. Quantify that by three things. Holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service acceptable unto God sometimes as Christians we've got a life of broken relationships you know families come fighting all the way to church I don't know if you did or not I got here for everybody else I got, I'll leave that alone Come fighting all the way to church. And we get in the pew and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. God's not interested. Lost our temper at the red light because of the Sunday driver in front of us. God's not interested. Living a life of secret sin. Nobody else knows what my eyes saw Saturday night. Nobody else knows what's on my phone, etc. God's not interested in that worship. It doesn't matter how good from the human perspective the worship might be. I'll speak with pastors just for a moment since I'm up here and everybody can see me. There's a number of pastors now, this is true in the last 10 years that have lived abominable lives. And people followed them. They were well-spoken. They're articulate, if you will. They look the part. While they're engaging in all that sin, everything they did, God rejected. That is a powerful sentiment to consider. And listen, if I'm living an inconsistent, unrighteous, unholy life, God's not interested in my worship either. Look what God is interested in. The sacrifices. Talking about the acceptable sacrifices to God. What are they? A broken spirit? That's an interesting thing. A broken spirit. He goes on. A contrite heart. This is the mark of a repentant humility. It's godly sorrow that works repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Failure to come to God without a humble and broken heart will always be a rejected sacrifice. God said, that's what I want. You know, here's a marvelous thing. He goes down to verse number 16, Thou desirest not sacrifice, desirest not burnt offerings. In the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, in some of those sacrifices, there were um, openings, if you will, made for folks in different stations of life. Some a turtle dove versus a bullock versus a lamb, if you will. 
Sometimes we get carried away with the sacrifices we make to God, surely thinking that God's going to love them. But at the essence of it, the sacrifices <clears throat> that are acceptable to God have to deal with something that every living person can give Him. You can give Him a broken heart. You may not have thousands of dollars to give God. But every one of us have the opportunity to give him a broken and contrite heart. One that has complete cleansing from sin. One that has sought forgiveness. One that is seeking the renewal of the Spirit of God. These are the gifts and sacrifices that God requires. He moves on in verse number 19. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous with the burnt offerings, with the whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine offer. He's looking at that time. Confession, forgiveness is received. The restored joy of salvation. The desire to teach and to praise and to worship. Because the heart is right, the worship will be accepted. Why? Because the worship will also be pleasing to God. This is true for us by application. It's true of the Jew in the time and David wrote it and it'll be true of the Jew in the days that lie ahead as Ezekiel speaks about. With sin in the life of believer, we don't risk our eternal destiny, but we do risk our service and certainly our fellowship with God. Without these, we press toward a joyless, empty worship of God. All the while God longing and desiring to be pleased with the work that He has done in and through us. Hence the need for restoration and forgiveness to flow through the heart of the contrite saint so that their sacrifice might be acceptable in His sight. The most joyous experience for any child of God is to know that their sacrifice of themselves is pleasing to God. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org Until next time.